called Guardian Angel. And it's just a small, uh, like a boy, child, angel in prayer, you know, looking down. Maybe he's, you know, the prayer that might... We're walking through the studio of Isabel Bloom, Inc., a sculpture company headquartered in Davenport, Iowa. The voice you're hearing belongs to Donna Young, the designer and co-owner of the place. Donna is showing us a few pieces that Isabel Bloom makes. Statues of a mother hugging her child, elephant-shaped bowls, a garden gnome, and, of course, corn. Isabel Bloom is named after its founder, a beloved local artist. It's known for simple, handcrafted figurines and ornaments cast in concrete. The studio started in Isabel's own basement nearly 70 years ago. It's grown, it's shrunk, it's grown, it's shrunk. You know, it's kind of just been a a bit of an organic thing. And everything happened in the East Village, the little house that um, Isabel started her business in. Today, Isabel Bloom is located in a rectangular yellow brick building near downtown Davenport, just a couple hundred yards from the banks of the Mississippi River. Davenport is one of the Quad Cities, a cluster of neighboring cities in Iowa and Illinois that straddle the Mississippi River. This area hosts companies like John Deere and Kraft Heinz, making the Quad Cities economy a good mix of agriculture, white-collar work, and manufacturing. But just like many Midwestern cities, its blue-collar residents have been affected by the macro trends in the global economy, trends like the rise of goods made in China. And these trends have also affected Isabel Bloom. A little over a decade ago, the company announced a startling decision to outsource its manufacturing and production to China in order to lower costs and expand nationwide. That decision threw Isabel Bloom into the middle of a local uproar. Shortly after the announcement, the company was flooded with angry letters, op-eds in the papers lambasted the decision, and locals even boycotted the store. So what led an Iowa business to have to choose between its local heritage and the promise of lower costs abroad? And how did it pan out for the workers at Isabel Bloom and the residents of Davenport? So it was a, it was a very dark time. Right. Welcome to Heartland Mainland, the Iowa-China podcast, brought to you by Macropolo. I'm Holly He, Multimedia and Research Associate at Macropolo, the think tank of the Paulson Institute in Chicago. And I'm Matt Sheehan, a fellow here at Macropolo. In Heartland Mainland, we're combing through the complex relationships between the Hawkeye State and the People's Republic of China. In our last episode, we looked at the real-time consequences of the U.S.-China trade war for Iowa farmers. This week, we're focusing on manufacturing, specifically how that made-in-China tag you see everywhere affected workers here in Iowa. After China joined the World Trade Organization in 2001, American consumers quickly benefited from cheap Chinese imports. Some American factories experienced job losses, but many economists expected the losses to be temporary. But according to estimates, as factories moved overseas and consumers opted for cheaper products, over a million American manufacturing jobs were lost between 1999 and 2011. It turns out that temporary job market adjustment period endured much longer than expected. Economists dubbed this phenomenon the China shock and mapped out its impact across the states. That China shock hit the Rust Belt the hardest, including places in eastern Iowa like Davenport. 
But while the city was shaken by global economic forces, it rallied behind a beloved local business caught in the middle. Through the story of Isabel Bloom, we'll take you back to China's entry to the World Trade Organization, the loss of American manufacturing jobs in the decade that followed, and the U.S.-China trade war of the past couple of years. Welcome to Heartland Mainland. For people like me who were born in the 1980s, it can feel like China has always been the factory of the world. Like the shelves of Walmart's have always been chock full of toys, clothes, and gadgets that were made in China. But the history of China as an export powerhouse is actually a pretty short one, and it's been punctuated by a couple of key moments. One of the biggest of those came when China joined the World Trade Organization, the WTO. Chinese manufacturing had been growing quickly since the early 1980s when it first started opening its economy, but along the way, it had faced major hurdles and a lot of uncertainty. At home, China still had a lot of state-owned enterprises, large government-run companies that were often painfully bureaucratic and really inefficient. And when it came to trading with the U.S., China was always in a precarious position. China enjoyed what's called most favored nation status with the U.S. on trade, meaning its exports had relatively low tariffs. But every year, the U.S. Congress had to vote on whether or not to renew that status. If Congress ever decided to take it away, China would suddenly face really high tariffs—tariffs that might crush its budding export sector. Bringing China into the WTO was supposed to solve these problems. To join the WTO. China had to promise to reduce its subsidies to state-owned enterprises and transition towards a more market-driven economy. In return, it would get permanent most favored nation trade status. That meant smoothing the path ahead for a boom in exports. At the time, there was a pretty strong consensus among American economists and the business community that this would be a win-win for the U.S. China's huge and young labor force could be deployed to make everything from shoes to VCRs, and wealthier American and European consumers would be ready to buy up all these goods. Bringing China into the WTO was supposed to force it to play by the rules in international trade—rules that had been written by the U.S. and its allies. Americans would save money by buying cheaper Chinese goods, and as China grew richer, it would buy more American exports. Sure, there might be a temporary hit to American manufacturers that competed with China, but the economics literature said that these workers would quickly find new jobs—jobs jobs created because of all the big-picture gains to the American economy. In the summer of the year 2000, the U.S. Congress voted on a bill that would essentially authorize President Clinton to welcome China into the WTO. This is worth underscoring, Mr. Chairman. WTO accession would not be a favor for China. Instead, WTO accession is a means of opening and reforming China's markets, and of holding China to the rules of the global trading system. Labor unions fought hard against the bill, arguing that it would hurt American workers who couldn't compete with the bargain basement prices of made-in-China goods. Call it whatever you want; the policy remains the same—a failure. But the unions struggled to muster a coalition in the Senate. Iowa's representatives in Congress were optimistic about the bill's impact on the state. Iowa soybean farmers had been investing in the Chinese market for nearly two decades, and entry to the WTO promised to be the key that might finally unlock that growth. All five of Iowa's Congress people and both of its senators ended up voting for the bill. 
It passed the House comfortably and the Senate overwhelmingly by a vote of 83 to 15. On October 10, 2000, President Clinton signed the bill into law. In opening the economy of China, the agreement will create unprecedented opportunities for American farmers, workers, and companies to compete successfully in China's market while bringing increased prosperity to the people of China. On December 11, 2001, China was officially welcomed into the World Trade Organization at a signing ceremony in Doha, Qatar. Meanwhile, 7,218 miles to the west of Doha, a rapidly growing team of artisans at the Isabel Bloom Studios was preparing for the big Christmas rush. To understand the economic landscape of Isabel Bloom's hometown, we met with Frank Klipsch, the mayor of Davenport from 2016 through 2019. So I think we were known as that uh, hardworking, middle-class workers that are, in fact, uh, quality workers, good, solid people. So I think that makes a big difference in our community. That community attracted a lot of the big-name American brands. This was really noted as a manufacturing area on the river. You know, we had a Kraft and Sterlite, Sterlite's new, but Kraft and Oscar Mayer have been here for a long time on the river. Uh, Nestle Prina has one of their largest plants in the country here downtown on the river. Plus we have John Deere in the Quad Cities and their international headquarters, and they have a number of their plants in this area as well. Nestled among these giants of Midwest manufacturing, there are also small mom and pop shops like Isabel Bloom. Since its creation, it's been known as a unique local business with deep Davenport roots. Find handcrafted gifts at Isabel Bloom. Say what's in your heart. Add a sculpture to a collection. Or decorate your home or garden. Shop Isabel Bloom. When I started working for Isabel Bloom, there were only five employees, so it was a very small company. That's Donna Young the woman who gave us a tour of the Isabel Bloom Studios. Donna began working with Isabel in 1981, when she was fresh out of college. And I thought it would be something fun to kind of do while I figured out what I really wanted to do with my life. And um, so that was like 35 years ago. <laughs> Donna's first task was making molds from Isabel's designs, molds that were then used to cast the sculptures. At the time, they were still designing and casting all the statues in Isabel's home studio. But local demand for Isabel's pieces kept growing, and her home was soon overflowing with sculptures. It's very precarious because we're carrying concrete pieces in boxes up and down rickety stairs, and it was just, it was just an accident waiting to happen. In 1995, Isabel Bloom's company was purchased by new owners, who moved the operations into a larger space near downtown Devonport. Donna continued to work closely with Isabel, first learning how to design and sculpt in Isabel's signature style and then adding her own twists. In 2001, at the age of 93, Isabel Bloom passed away at her home in Davenport. At the time, the company employed about 180 people. These years were also a period of transition for the larger economy of the Quad Cities. China had just entered the WTO, and manufacturers in eastern Iowa were starting to feel the squeeze as consumers shifted to buying those cheaper goods. The new owners of Isabel Bloom also had ambitions to scale up the business. For decades, 
Isabel's sculptures had been sold locally and in the surrounding region. Many customers in these areas knew about Isabel Bloom's story and had collected her sculptures for years. They were willing to pay a premium for the pieces compared with the cheap ornaments or sculptures sold by retailers like Walmart. But if the owners wanted to sell Isabel Bloom's sculptures across the U.S., they couldn't really count on that kind of loyalty. Instead, they had to find ways to cut costs. They began formulating a plan to move production of the statues to China. They felt that that it was a good decision and that that was how they were going to expand nationally and grow the company from coast to coast and maybe even beyond. And they thought the best thing to do would be to have, it, have the designs continued to be made here but have it manufactured in China out of a lighter weight, sturdier product. According to the Quad City Times, in February of 2006, employees shuffled into a meeting where company officials informed workers of their decision. In a press release, the owners stated that virtually the entire American gift industry had moved production overseas. Speaking with the Quad City Times, one of the co-owners of Isabel Bloom put it bluntly, quote, I'd challenge you to go into a gift shop and find something that is not made overseas. And I think that the previous owners just, you know, they were looking at it strictly from a dollars and cents thing, and they didn't understand that um, the, the true value of an Isabel Bloom. Everybody, almost everybody, um, lost their jobs. The workers at Isabel Bloom weren't alone. In the years after China's entry into the WTO, it played out as predicted in a lot of ways. The price of consumer goods like toys, clothing, and electronics went down in the U.S., meaning the purchasing power of American people increased. And Chinese demand for certain American exports also increased dramatically. Iowa soybean farmers finally saw the surge in Chinese purchases that they'd been waiting two decades for. At the same time, cities in the American Rust Belt began experiencing job losses, especially in manufacturing sectors that competed with Chinese goods. This is what economists call import substitution, which means that consumers opt for the cheaper imported alternatives rather than the more expensive domestic products. This disruption was expected even built into the economic models. The model said, yes, there would be a temporary hit to American workers who directly competed with Chinese imports. But with the new growth opportunities in the American economy, those workers would quickly find new jobs. But as the decade went on, that adjustment wasn't materializing. Unemployment remained stubbornly high in many Rust Belt cities. Economists had long attributed this decline in manufacturing employment to automation. That is still considered a major factor in the decline of American manufacturing jobs, but beginning around 2013, a small cohort of economists began pushing back on the idea that trade had just a small impact. They did that by getting very local in their analysis. They zoomed in and coded each slice of American geography by how much exposure its local economy had to Chinese imports. Essentially, how many local businesses directly competed with those goods. A color-coded map of these regions from their 2016 paper provides a snapshot of economic distress in the middle of the country. In the map, red signifies high exposure to Chinese imports, and it glows bright red across Tennessee, Arkansas, Missouri, and Indiana. Much of western Iowa farmland came out okay, but along the state's eastern border with Illinois and Wisconsin, a stripe of red reveals a struggling rust belt. 
Isabel Bloom's home city of Davenport is about the middle of the pack in terms of the impact of Chinese imports. But drive just a little way west, north, or across the Mississippi River to the east, and you immediately enter some of the hardest-hit regions. The economists found that these areas with greater exposure to Chinese imports experienced much larger increases in unemployment, and these impacts weren't going away. They estimated the impacts to be a million jobs lost in American manufacturing before 2011. In the title of their paper, the authors coined a term for this phenomenon: the China shock. They argued that the China shock was so much larger than expected for a couple of reasons. First, China's integration into global trade was unprecedented in terms of scale and speed. The size of the country's workforce and just how economically repressed it had been under state planning meant that when China's productive capacity came onto global markets, the size and speed of that impact surpassed anything we'd seen before. There were also domestic U.S. factors, namely that worker mobility turned out to be much lower than economic models had predicted. Those models imagined the U.S. to have a relatively fluid labor market, one in which workers quickly moved to where the jobs were, like water flowing downhill toward a new equilibrium. But those assumptions weren't playing out on the ground. Americans were actually moving locations less than ever before. Since 1947, the Census Bureau has been tracking what percentages of Americans move locations each year. The year 2000 through 2001. Set a record low with just over 14 percent of people moving. By 2018 to 19, it had fallen below 10 percent for the first time. Local ties appear to be much stronger and stickier than economists had expected. Those ties often kept workers from moving with jobs, but in places like Davenport, local ties could also keep those jobs from moving away in the first place. Once the Quad City Times shared the news of the layoffs, angry locals swarmed the comment section of the newspaper. This was 2006, not quite our current era of cancel culture, but Quad City residents knew how to speak their minds online. We have we have copies of all of the the comments from people. Uh, the Quad City Times, a local newspaper, pages and pages and pages of. An outcry from the customers of how could you do this? You know that's why we buy it. That's what the meaning is. Angry customers sent in over 500 emails to the company and submitted 700 letters and comments to the local newspaper protesting the decision to outsource production. People who wanted to buy real Isabel Bloom pieces before the overseas move formed lines around the studio. One local resident complained, "Quote: Isabel Bloom is a Quad City icon." They may as well just go over and pee on her grave while they're at it. A typical China shock story might just end there. A company moves production overseas, people get mad, but they forget about it over time, and the company stays in China. But that wasn't the end of the Isabel Bloom story. When we visited the Isabel Bloom production studio, we saw the machines whirling. So what happened? It turns out that local outrage actually worked. Just two weeks after their initial announcement, Isabel Bloom's management reversed the decision. In their words, moving the whole production line to China proved to be a gross error in judgment. 
with the outcry, the owners took a step back and went, oh, we're going to lose local business if we don't continue to make it here. So then everybody was called back. And I pr pretty much everybody came back. They, they wanted their jobs. They loved their jobs, but totally uh, lost trust in their owners. The company did start producing a small separate line of sculptures in China for nationwide distribution in the U.S., but stopped all overseas manufacturing by 2010. Throughout this whole process, Donna remained with Isabel Bloom as a designer and informal leader. In 2011, when the former owners retired, Donna and two co-workers bought the company. Isabel Bloom's story brings some hope to people who mourn the loss of manufacturing jobs to China. But despite local sentiment, having saved this one-of-a-kind business, the reality is most of the things we buy in the U.S. get made thousands of miles away, in factories and not artisan studios. We want to hear what locally made mint to Iowans here. Does the average Davenport resident follow that by local attitude when they do their Christmas shopping? To find out, we bid goodbye to Donna and drove five miles north to a mecca of global consumerism, Davenport's very own Walmart Supercenter. This was on December 15, 2019, and Iowans were deep in their Christmas shopping. So right now we are just arriving in the Walmart in Davenport, Iowa, and we are currently at the Christmas ornament section. Yeah, and we're uh, working on our little game, which is Holly and I are going to split up and see who is the first to find an item that's made in America, neither the toys or the ornaments, and then whoever finds the item first gets that item purchased for them. Ready to go? Yes. Three, Three two, two, one. one. Go. The sounds of a made in China rainbow unicorn. Ooh, okay. These are superheroes. Superheroes. I feel like we got a shot here. Uh, Batman for $9.97. What about, do we got a Captain America anywhere here? And what do you know? Captain America is made in China. Sounds about right. After going through aisles and aisles of ornaments and toys, Holly finally found something tucked away in a corner. Matt, I found it. I found it. I found it. Made in the USA. Where? I'm so excited. <laughs> Where is it? This is the section that's called patriotic toys. Oh. Uh, ornaments, ornaments. Patriotic. Patriotic ornaments. You see these? Yep. There you go. It's a police officer's cap with some sort of uh, blue sparkles on it. Mm -hmm. And it is made in USA. Yeah, so 9.98? 9.98 for one metal ornament. Whereas across the aisle is the Walmart brand. For a similar ornament, it's 198. Yeah. After our little game, we asked some shoppers a question. Do you care where your Christmas gifts are made? It doesn't really matter where it's made for me. I just, price is kind of a big thing. Um, for me, it's not part of the equation because, well, I'm, I'm a cheapo. I don't care where it comes from as long as it's cheap. Christmas shoppers at Walmart may have moved on. But during the 2016 presidential election, candidate Donald Trump made trade with China one of the centerpieces of his campaign. He referenced the country over 20 times in his speech announcing his campaign, mostly when talking about trade. We used to have victories, but we don't have them. When was the last time 
Anybody saw us beating, let's say, China in a trade deal, they kill us. I beat China all the time. All the time. He hammered that message extra hard when barnstorming through the Midwest, ground zero for the China shock. Here he is at a rally in Davenport, just two months before the 2016 Iowa caucuses. You know, what China has done to us is the greatest theft in the history of the world. It really is. If you look at the jobs, the money, the base, everything, they've taken it. And you know what? I love the Chinese. I love the everything's fine. They, I sell them apartments for a fortune. Right? The biggest bank, the biggest bank. Though Trump's rhetoric on China may have sounded simplistic, at least on the surface, his diagnosis appeared to line up with the China shock paper, which wouldn't be published for another month. But if you ask the economists behind the paper, both the diagnosis and the remedy are a lot more complicated than what Trump suggested. In the China shock paper itself, the authors take pains to say that they are not making an all-out indictment of trade. Instead, they're looking to correct what they see as a historical oversight in the cost-benefit analysis, one that predicted that the costs of this kind of trade would be negligible. On the question of what to do about trade going forward, the three economists behind the China shock paper advise a far different approach from an all-out trade war. For example, all three of them supported the passage of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the trade deal that was nixed by President Trump after painstaking negotiations during the Obama administration. In a 2017 interview, one of the authors, David Otter, was blunt about his assessment of the use of tariffs. Quote, I think the idea of slapping large tariffs or border taxes on imports is a very destructive idea on all kinds of fronts. Ironically, some of that destruction Otter predicted ended up landing just down the road from Isabel Bloom. John Deere is the world's largest manufacturer of farm equipment. Remember in our last episode how Xi Jinping climbed up in a tractor at Rick Kimberly's farm? That was John Deere. The company also happens to be headquartered right here in the Quad Cities. Biggest employer. um, It kind of acts as a a bellwether, not just for U.S. manufacturing, but, but also for the state of the economy within the Quad Cities in, in Illinois and Iowa. That's Mark Grivicheski, an investment advisor at Quad Cities Investment Group in Davenport. Mark specializes in risk management and market volatility, two things that there have been plenty of for John Deere in the past two years. And, and John Deere is really being squeezed on both sides of this trade dispute spectrum. Uh, U.S. tariffs on imported steel and aluminum increase John Deere's manufacturing costs. China's tariffs on U.S. manufacturing goods make John Deere products and goods more expensive to buy in the Chinese marketplace. Chinese tariffs on uh, U.S. agricultural products negatively impact farmers uh, who then have less disposable income to buy John Deere equipment. In October of 2019, John Deere laid off 163 employees in Davenport and neighboring East Moline. A month later, John Deere announced a voluntary buyout program where workers who voluntarily leave their jobs can accept a severance package. Then, in December, another round of layoffs cost 57 more people their jobs. Representatives from John Deere declined our request for an interview. In a statement, they simply told us that, quote, 
customer uncertainty regarding access to global markets was one factor influencing their results. A lot of people that, that I know today and, and growing up worked for John Deere at, at some point. It's just a massive employer. And uh, when, when John Deere announces layoffs, it impacts the entire broader region. Things remain rocky in the world of international trade. But here in Davenport, the workers at Isabel Bloom continue to churn out statues in the same style that the company's namesake perfected seven decades ago. Pure latex from the rubber trees in Malaysia. So they'll brush the latex on the clay model until they reach a desired thickness. And then when we visited the Isabel Bloom studios, it was Christmas season. People in the studio were busy sculpting, casting, and coloring, and the little gift shop in front was selling Christmas ornaments, mugs, and cards. Lots of these knickknacks sold in the front are not made by Isabel Bloom. These are the more generic products that you might get at Walmart or Target, and the tag on some of them here reads Made in China. Today, Don and her team face new challenges, and not all of them come from abroad. You talk to any brick-and-mortar retail business, we're all competing with Amazon and um, that kind of thing. So it's challenging, but um, we're staying pretty steady. Running a business like Isabel Bloom is complicated. There are a lot of moving parts and hurdles. Today, the company employs 70 people and continues crafting beautiful sculptures every day. It's a locally made product, and people who buy it as gifts, a lot of times they're giving it to someone as a piece of home, like, you know, someone who maybe used to live in the Quad Cities and now they live in Florida or they've, they've moved away and so it's a piece of home and it's a piece of their home so it's, you're giving something from where you're from and there's a lot of local pride. Heartland Mainland is written and produced by Holly He and me, Matt Sheehan. It's brought to you by Macro Polo, think tank of the Paulson Institute in Chicago. To explore more about this series and our research into Chinese politics, economics, and technology, find us online at macropolo.org. That's macro as in macroeconomics and polo as in marcopolo.org. We'd like to thank our assistant producer, Uje Julia Song, who wrote the script with us. We also thank our student fellow, Xu Yingwen, for her work on research and production. Finally, we'd like to thank Ash and Spencer for the music. I'm Matt Sheehan. And I'm Holly Hu. Catch you next time on Heartland Mainland.